going to mark your Bibles there. It's a relatively short book with relatively short chapters, but it's filled with a lot of intriguing uh, events and information, a lot of lessons there as I studied. Uh, this is obviously a story. Growing up, you hear Bible stories. This is one that you hear as much as any. It always kind of grabs your attention, very memorable. But as the case is with so many of these stories in the Bible, as you dig in, you begin to dissect it more and you begin to extract more meaning than you realized was there. And that was the case as I studied from the book of Jonah. Hope you also find that to be the case for yourself this morning. Um, But we think about this story and it's probably as criticized or as attacked as any story in the Bible. Uh, Critics attack uh, the book of Jonah. They'll say that this couldn't have happened. Obviously, unbelievers and atheists are going to make that claim, but it's kind of disturbing or confusing. Many Christians will say this wasn't historical. This was figurative. This didn't literally happen. So we think about this story. This is probably my oldest son, Kyson's favorite Bible story, and it's been probably his favorite since we've been reading Bible stories at night. It's the one he always wants to come back to. He said early on the story of Jonas. You want to read the story of Jonas? We've read that story over and over and over. But I think sometimes we think about these stories in the Bible and the word story sometimes has this connotation like it can be fictional. Like these are just fictional stories that didn't actually happen. But for those of us who believe these things literally happen as the Bible presents them, maybe a better term sometimes would be biblical account. And there's few biblical accounts that are as criticized and attacked as the biblical account of the story of Jonah. There are even many superficial, trivial attacks made by critics. They'll say, well, some places the translation is great fish, and in other places the translation is whale. A whale is a mammal, not a fish. Well, it's important to understand that classification distinction likely did not exist at that time. Additionally, the Hebrew word deg and the Greek word ketos that are translated great fish or whale, etc., are really generic terms for just a sea creature or sea monster or any aquatic sea creature. Critics will also claim that there aren't any whales capable, uh, their humans are not capable of surviving in a well for three days. Even though there are accounts of people who have survived in such creatures for three days. And additionally, scientists recognize and will admit that there are whales capable of swallowing objects greater than the size of a human being. You know, it's interesting. I read an article uh, that was written about a year ago, and they've discovered these fish factories on the Mediterranean, ancient Roman fish factories where they processed various fish. And they did DNA testing and discovered that they were also processing whales. And some whales they were surprised to learn actually existed in the Mediterranean Sea at that time. But, you know, really this debate or this discussion about what swallowed Jonah and was that possible is irrelevant because the text makes it clear that God's supernatural, miraculous power was at work. And so really the question is, is supernaturalism credible? Well, if God exists and there's adequate evidence to present that case and prove that fact, if God exists and God created the universe... If Jesus rose from the dead, then certainly supernaturalism is credible. Supernaturalism is credible. If man can make a submarine and survive underwater for long periods of time, why do we think it's impossible for God to do this? And in fact, 
Jesus himself endorsed the story of Jonah. We're going to talk about that at the tail end of our study this morning. And so the credibility of Jesus in some way depends upon the credibility of this biblical account of the story of Jonah. Very unique book focused just as much on the messenger as the actual message of the book. Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who was king in Israel. He was contemporary to the prophets Hosea and Amos, who prophesied that God would use the Assyrian Empire to punish Israel. And so you can see from Jonah's perspective why any good patriotic Israelite would want God to destroy this weapon that he's going to use against his people. In Jonah's perspective, a good Assyrian was a dead Assyrian. And it's interesting, later on, the prophet Nahum would prophesy that ultimately uh, the, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, would fall. God would punish them. And he gives very specific details about how that would occur. He talks about flooding. Flooding would destroy the walls of the city. Rivers there due to flooding swelled and and broke down parts of the walls so that the Medes could come in and conquer that city. It would be during a state of drunkenness. The king of of Nineveh was drunk uh, with his soldiers during uh, that time that it would be obliterated and never be healed or never be rebuilt. And in fact, the ancient city of Nineveh lies across the river from the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. You might recognize that city because of ISIS and trying to recapture the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. Very fascinating prophecies concerning not only Israel, but concerning the city of Nineveh. There's also been archaeological discoveries that have uh, authenticated the biblical record or account of the nation of Assyria. All the kings of Assyria listed in the Bible time and time again are proven to be authentic. Even the king uh, named Sargon, for a long time, critics said there's no evidence that there was a king named Sargon. Then they discovered Sargon's palace, time and time again proving the reliability of the Bible. They found a tunnel under the city of Jerusalem. Whenever uh, the king of Assyria came against Judah, after the Assyrians had conquered Israel, eventually they also came against the southern kingdom of Judah and began to conquer different towns in Judah. And eventually they arrive at the capital of Jerusalem. And in preparation for that, King Hezekiah of Judah redirected water from springs outside of the city with tunnels into the city of Jerusalem. And that tunnel has been discovered here, Hezekiah's tunnel. Also depicts about how they went about making that tunnel. Very fascinating discoveries that authenticate the Bible. They found uh, records uh, from the king of Assyria where he uh, describes um, how he basically shut up King Hezekiah and the people behind the walls of the city like a bird in the cage. They basically were besieged, and they just waited behind the walls. That's why that water was so important, so they could wait it out. But he brags about shutting him up like a bird in a cage, but he doesn't brag about actually capturing the city of Jerusalem or killing the king of, uh, of Judah. It's because he didn't. The Bible foretold that he would conquer some of Judah, but he would not conquer Jerusalem. And the Bible also reveals why. God killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the middle of the night, and he went back home. Very fascinating discoveries that time and time again continue to validate and confirm the biblical narrative. These are a brutal people. Relics and relief walls in the king's palace reveal some of the things he did in those towns in Judah. Here we see a depiction of impaling captives. 
Here we see the flaying of captives or skinning them alive. They were very, they are known for their brutality. They were wicked. They were evil. They were enemies of God's people. They were going to be used by God as a weapon against God's people. So you can see and somewhat sympathize a little bit from Jonah's perspective why he had no interest in going to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, he was given a message of judgment, which he would have certainly liked. But he recognized and understood that Jehovah, that God was a merciful and gracious God, and that if the people of Nineveh repented, God would forgive them. God would save them. And he couldn't bear that thought. And so he runs in the opposite direction, 2,000 miles west of where he was supposed to go. But God had other plans. God sends a storm, uh, redirects Jonah. God sends a whale. The whale serves basically, or sea creature, serves basically as a classroom for Jonah for three days. God taught Jonah some lessons. Spat back up on land to go do what God told him to do in the first place. Goes to Nineveh, preaches this message. Very harsh, very judgmental. In 40 days... The city of Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he goes outside the city to watch the fireworks, to watch the show. And he is upset that God, as he predicted, God is merciful and gracious because every single person in Nineveh repents from the king to the commoner, 120,000 people. God saves them. God delivers them. And Jonah's upset about that. God sends, uh, makes a plant, provides a plant to provide shade for Jonah. Jonah, for the first time we read, is happy, is satisfied, is content. Next day, God sends a worm to destroy the plant. Jonah's mad at God again to the point of wanting to die. And I believe some of the ultimate lessons of the book of Jonah are actually taught in Jonah chapter 4, the final chapter of the book of Jonah. We'll see here in a moment. But we want to learn these lessons that God taught Jonah, thankfully in this beautiful, comfortable building, instead of in the belly of a giant sea monster. And as we think about the lessons that God taught Jonah, I think... The first lesson that jumps off the pages of the book of Jonah, that jumps off the pages of every page in the book of the the Bible, is the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control, and we see that throughout the book of Jonah. God sent a storm. God sent a great sea creature. God prepared a gourd. God prepared a worm. God is in control because God is sovereign. And we are sorely mistaken if we think that man, that we think we are in control of the future of, of the nations. God is in control. We're sorely mistaken if we think a strong national defense, nuclear weapons, a strong economy, health care, etc. ultimately determines our eternal destiny. And we see time and time again throughout the Bible, in history, that these world powers fail. That when the iniquity was full, God humbled them. And they lost their power because God has ultimate power. God is bigger than the sea monster. God is bigger than the gourd and the comforts that we enjoy in this life. God is bigger than nuclear weapons. God is bigger. And as we reflect upon the size of God and the greatness of God, it causes us to also reflect upon and admit and recognize the smallness of us. And that ought to motivate us to submit to the one who is truly in control. God is sovereign. And as we think about the sovereignty of God, we start talking about the omnis. God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. And we certainly see that in this book. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. We see that. God is omnipresent. Maybe that's emphasized as much as any of the omnis throughout the book of Jonah. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. My God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can any hide himself in secret places that I should not see him? This is the most terrifying truth for those that would try to run from God, but it is the most comforting truth for those who are walking with God. 
that God is accessible. He's made himself accessible. He's not a God afar off. He's a God that's at hand. He's a God that's near. He's a God that's approachable, that can always be reached. Think about omnipresence. Kelsey and I sometimes joke that our kids are omnipresent. It sure seems like that sometimes. It's hard to find any privacy. Uh, they know everything. They see everything. They say, they hear everything. They imitate everything. Uh, it's very disturbing, very motivating. Um, you know, we've been following the, the Bluebell ice cream debacle. It's been very disturbing about the state of our, our nation. Um, these people getting into the Bluebell ice cream containers and licking the lids. And my solution to that, if Mike wants to stop that at his Walmart, he needs to hire my boys because they will catch whoever's getting into the ice cream. They have a lot of experience doing that at our house. They're everywhere. And that's very motivating concerning what we do and what we say. I want to tell you, you don't do anything. You don't think anything. You don't say anything. You don't get into anything. You don't go any place that God doesn't know about. And that ought to motivate righteousness. His continual presence should motivate righteousness. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. You can't run far and fast enough. And Jonah learned that lesson the hard way. And I don't know that Jonah actually thought he could escape the presence of God. Surely, as a prophet of God, he knew that. He admits and recognizes that he's the God of land and sea. Surely he knew that. But I think what Jonah ultimately was doing was declaring his unwillingness to serve God and serve other people. He was quitting his prophetic work. And he made that abundantly clear. He goes in the complete opposite direction, 2,000 miles west. Many believe on the southwest coast of Spain. That'd be like God telling us to go to New York City and us deciding, I'm going to go to Hawaii. And maybe we don't get on a boat. Maybe we don't make that statement with our mouth, but our actions speak louder than words. And we make the same declaration concerning the work that God has given to us. And as we reflect upon the sovereignty of God, then... It causes us to also learn this lesson that running from God is always more dangerous than walking with God. You see this interesting graphic poetic language Jonah uses in chapter 2 to describe his experience in the belly of the sea monster. I cried by reason of my affliction out of the belly of hell or Sheol cried I into the deep, into the midst of the sea, and the floods can pass me about. All thy billows and waves passed over me. I am cast out of thy sight, away from the presence of God. The waters can pass about me, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The seaweeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. And that's how we feel when we start making these decisions where we run from God instead of walking with God and we Things begin to snowball. Maybe we, we tell lies and we have to maintain the lies or live the lie. And the walls begin to close in and we begin to feel claustrophobic. And it's exhausting. And we wake up one day and think, how did I get here? This stinks, literally. Imagine being in this sea creature for three days. The things that he experienced. And we wake up and think, how did I get here? How did I get here? You know, Kelsey and I went to... Uh, we're in Cape Cod last fall. We went well watching. We went to the first uh, session because we're always on a schedule. 
So we went in the morning really early, and insider tip, what we learned is that the first session spends all the time eventually finding where the whales are so the other groups can see more whales. Uh, we were still able to see several whales, including many humpbacks, which were huge creatures, and it was an awesome experience. But I want to tell you, I was sitting there thinking I wanted no part of being in the water with those things. Not to mention great white sharks, which are also in the area, or killer whales, etc. I wanted to know I'm not going to free willy or or uh, swim with Shamu, or I want no part of that. And you think about being out in the ocean, how intimidating that can be, especially at night in the dark, and then especially in a storm, and then especially in the water. Think about what Jonah was going through. And yet we see God's gracious and corrective hand trying to bring us back out of the scary place before it's too late. Jonah's about to die. Think about the experience of drowning. Jonah's about to die. And leading up to this, we read Jonah was sleeping in grave danger and great peril. Jonah's asleep. How often does that describe our condition? How often does that describe us spiritually? And the irony, a pagan mariner has to rebuke a prophet of God for not being spiritual, for needing to pray to his God. Everybody's praying, but the one who serves the one true God. It's interesting, you read in Jonah 1, 3, it says, but Jonah goes on to describe him trying to run from God. But Jonah, but the very next verse, I love the next verse, but God. But the Lord, God can use these events in our lives, these maybe even near-death experiences like Jonah. You ever had a near-death experience? Get your attention about the fragility of life and life being short and not wasting time and the things that really matter in this life. Maybe we've had more near-death experiences than we even realize. And God can use these events in our lives to wake us up to our apathy and to our spiritual blindness that destroys ourselves and destroys those around us. Not only putting ourselves in danger, but like Jonah, we put others in danger. And there are times when our choices seem so irrational, just like Jonah's choice to run from God. He knew who God was. He admitted that I serve the God of the land and the sea, yet he gets on a boat to try to run from him. And how often do we do things that completely contradict what we know and what we claim to believe? And I want to ask us to consider this morning, what things has God asked us to do that we're running from? That we're avoiding. And Jonah didn't end up where he planned to go, did he? That's how sin works. That's how the devil works. You ride the devil's boat, you will always pay the fare. You'll always pay the price, but you will end up at the wrong destination. Every time. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do or with whom we give an account. To think about trying to run from the presence of God, I can't help but think of a Johnny Cash song. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later God will cut you down. Running from God is always more dangerous than walking with God. We also learn from this story that Serving isn't always convenient. We see God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great city. That would have been over a month of travel. And yet we won't get in the car to drive 10 minutes to church sometimes or 10 minutes to someone's house to serve them and evangelize them. The irony is we won't even evangelize in air conditioning. Jonah was more interested and found more joy than in his comforts than in saving people. And we find that appalling. We find that disturbing. But is that not the reality for us? 
God blesses us above and beyond the basic needs of life. We have all these joys and comforts, and we allow those to hinder us and distract us from serving the God of those blessings. And they become idols. And we won't get out of our comfort zone. We won't extend ourselves. We won't go the extra mile, etc., etc. We want to sit under our plant in our air-conditioned car, in our air-conditioned home while people die. And we throw pity parties when we lose those comforts. I would tell you, I throw a pity party when I lose the air conditioning. But we have no compassion for losing people. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And Paul goes on to put forward Jesus, the ultimate model of that. Put on the mind of Christ. What kind of mind did he have? To empty himself, make himself of no reputation, become a servant even to the point of death. Talk all the time. Root cause, right? Pride and selfishness every time. Pride and selfishness. And we see that here with Jonah. Pride, I'm God's people. What made you God's people, Jonah? You are born into the, the people of God. Congratulations. Aren't you better than everyone else? Selfishness, all about his comfort, all about the threat Assyria posed maybe to him and his people. Maybe he was afraid about how he would look like a false prophet if he announced and proclaimed that they were going to be destroyed and then God didn't destroy them. How often in evangelism are we so caught up in how we'll look and how we think and, and how we sound and how, and how we feel instead of being focused on God and others. I want to tell you, start running with God things you don't feel like doing, you don't really want to do, start doing those things, start running with God, and all of a sudden you'll find yourself running to things that you used to run from. As you realize and experience the joy of serving, that's what fills our cup. It's counterintuitive. We think that we're going to have self-fulfillment, self-preservation by running from God and not denying self and doing all the things that we want to do. Solomon said, vanity of vanities. It's a lie. Drains the cup. Because God created us to find joy and have our cup filled by serving Him and serving other people, not being selfish. Somebody says, how do we get people involved in evangelism? How do we get people to care about other people more? That's a, that's a plague in the church. How do we do that? Well, one of the things we can do is do it once, get them involved once, and they'll be hooked. You won't have to be extrinsic. If you see God change people and save people, you see the transformation the greatest high you'll ever experience. And you won't have to have people extrinsically motivating you anymore. Start valuing and caring and seeing people the way God was and you'll be willing to travel great distances at great expenses and great inconveniences because you're thinking about others and you're thinking about God, not just yourself anymore. God cares about everyone and we should too. That's maybe the ultimate lesson of this entire book. Interested in everybody, he expects us to be too. The Great Commission, all the world, every creature. Yet we see Jonah clearly did not want to go to Nineveh. You know, it's easy to think that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because of the brutality and the, the people in, in the city, as we talked about earlier. And certainly there was a legitimate reason to, to have some fear, but certainly as a prophet of God, he knew God would protect him so that he could deliver this message. Sometimes we think the story ends after chapter 3 in our children's Bibles. Jonah didn't obey God. God sent a, a great sea creature to teach Jonah a lesson. Jonah got a second chance and Jonah obeyed God. You need to obey God. And certainly that's a message in this book. That's a message throughout the Bible. But we're selling it so short if we think that's the only messages taught in the book of Jonah. 
We think we want the happy ending. So we stop after chapter 3 so we have a happy ending. There's a fourth chapter. And I submit to you there are as many lessons taught in chapter 4 that are sorely needed. Needed today as much as they've ever been. We need to teach our children the lessons in chapter 4 about racism. About nationalism. About our attitude towards God and our attitude towards other people. And Jonah reveals his greatest fear in chapter 4. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before into Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentance thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a beautiful prayer. He's rebuking God for being merciful and gracious. Not the irony, not recognizing God was treating the people of Nineveh like he had treated Jonah. He said, I'd rather die than to see you save these people. He was afraid that instead of destroying them, God would save them. He hated their guts and he wanted them to burn. We don't feel that way about anyone, do we? People we know, people we know of. People we don't know, our enemies, people in the Middle East. Gave a lesson one time during a meeting on love because, as you'll see, that was a subject that was needed. Working on unity efforts, and I talked about love and how love is a choice, and you overcome evil with good, and you just got to do the right thing regardless of how you feel. And the ultimate test is loving your enemy when somebody's treating you like an enemy. Can you love your enemy? Jesus said to love your enemy. Not just by... Warm, fuzzy feelings when they're not doing what's right, but giving a cup of water in his name, overcoming evil with good, it's what you choose to do. Following the golden rule, etc., etc. And I put forward the example, I asked, can we love Muslims? Can we love members of ISIS? And the irony was, the gentleman that got up to preside over the Lord's Supper, the greatest act of love, when we were enemies of God, Got up there and basically tried to discredit the sermon and argue with the sermon. I just don't know about that. I just don't know about that. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's not an option. That's a command. Pray for those who curse you. Do good to those who persecute you. And just like that gentleman, just like Jonah, I think sometimes we are completely out of touch with the gospel. We are completely out of touch with the heart, the mind, the feeling of God. When God was happy, Jonah was upset. When God was upset, Jonah was happy. He wanted to see the fireworks. And so as God begins to teach him another lesson, as he prepares the gourd and then destroys the gourd, and Jonah's angry to the point of death, and he says again, do you do well to do angry? This question, God keeps, are you right to be angry? I'm right even to death. Notice what God teaches. This is the end of the book. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons or 120,000 people that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? God basically tells Jonah, Should I not care about these people too? I think after years and years of being in the church or being raised in the church or serving God for. What about when we're confronted with the truth that God loves everyone just as much as he loves us? After years and years, it's easy to forget how much we still need God too. And we are quick to apply mercy and grace to ourselves, but how quick are we to apply mercy and grace to other people? Let's not get caught up in our own self-righteousness and let's recognize it's easy to condemn, but it's even more needful to try to rescue. We know a lot of people that don't know their right hand from their left hand. 
There's a lot of that going around today. Spiritually. Morally. Doctrinally. The plan of salvation. The way we're to worship God. New Testament Christianity. A lot of people. Sincere people. Don't know their right hand from their left hand. What are we doing about that? This is a frustrating and brilliant ending. Just an abrupt ending. This question that should convict us and lead us to action. If we want Jonah to have a better ending, let's write it. Let's be the type of people that cares for this city and cares for this world. And let's have an interest like God has that must manifest itself in initiative and involvement. Got to ask ourselves the question, do we love people more than our plants? If you know me, that's a convicting question. I love a good yard. I think it makes your house pop. We had a great yard in town. Uh, it was already developed when we got there, thankfully. We moved out to the country. It's been more of a challenge. They hydromulched our yard. I told them there was rain in the forecast. I told them that. And I worried about that. And they went ahead and did it. And it rained 8 to 10 inches. And all the hopes and dreams went to the bar ditch. And I've spent a great amount of money, seed, fertilizer, chemical, and it's still not where I want it to be. We worked a lot on our flower beds. And Kelsey and I like going to the botanical gardens. And we like going to nurseries. I, we skipped our 30s and went right to our 70s, I guess. But I can't help when we're outside playing. I, I'm like a drill sergeant walking the flower beds and walking the yard, looking to see that everything's in order. And there's a convicting question. Do I love people more than I love plants? Am I willing to invest that kind of resource, that kind of time, that kind of anxiety for people? One of the other themes of this book and throughout the Bible is the fact that people can change. You know, Paul talked a lot about that. Paul was a great example of that. He talked about in Ephesians how you were this type of person, enemies of God without hope, living this kind of life in your Something entirely different. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're crucified with Christ. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. We see changes even in heroes of faith. We see, obviously, the prodigal son. People can change. History says that Nineveh experienced severe plagues leading up to this, maybe preparing them for this revival. Sometimes it's the people that need change. Flat on your back when you start looking up to God. I think also they might have heard about Jonah's experience in the... In the Sea monster. Jesus said it was a sign of the people of Nineveh that got their attention. I think we get cynical about people. I'm not saying that we need to be naive or gullible. I'm not saying that there's a point where you reach with somebody who doesn't want to change and you're casting your pearls before swine and maybe instead of trying daily, you try every few months, you leave the door open. But maybe your efforts and are better off used somewhere else. I'm not saying that people can't change for the worse. And we see that too. But we get cynical about people. People in, in public service will talk about you know, law enforcement, military, elders. Things that you see, it's hard not to get calloused and get cynical about people. Sometimes you see the worst in people. But people can change. Hopefully we see that truth when we look in the mirror. Hopefully we're still changing. That's called growth. We're all here this morning as testimonies to the truth that people can change, and that God can change people. We're all testimonies to the grace and mercy of God. We see people around us. Think about Jimmy Hayes, who's been here. Been in Plainview all week, talking to young people about making bad choices and making good choices, because he made a lot of bad choices. Went from prison to preaching. 
Totally different person. Example, even closer to home, my Uncle Mark, who also spent time here for a year, over a year. I tell you, growing up, got to a point with him where I just thought he's never going to get it. He's never going to figure it out. That, that was when I was like a teenager thinking that. He's just not going to get it. He's not going to change. Family, too far gone. Past the point of no return. Family can never be healed. It's broken. And then he does. Then everything changes. Marriage is restored. The family is healed by the power and glory of God. People can change. You know, God gave Jonah second chances. God is the God of second chances, third chances, tenth chances, a hundredth chances. Basically told Jonah, let's try this again. Now, he didn't tell him. We don't tell people. We don't tell ourselves. And we're, we need to change. You don't feel like it. You still don't have to do what God said to do. God gave him the exact same command that he gave him initially. He said, go do it. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. That's how grace works. Titus 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, available for all of us, but it comes teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace is available for all of us, but we have to respond to its teaching. We have to change. That's what repentance means and involves. A, a turning, a change of the will. Yet we cry today, that's too harsh. That's legalistic. Imagine if the people of Nineveh had responded to Jonah's teaching that way. You know, it's not loving to withhold truth from people, to not warn them from imminent danger. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't withhold the truth. Paul didn't do that. God doesn't do that. And we shouldn't do that either. We have to preach the message God gave us. And it's in that book. It's the truth. We have to warn people of imminent danger, destroying themselves. But as we do that in an effort to make it more palatable, in an effort to speak the truth in love and season our words with salt, we have to always remember that we have the opportunity to do that, to testify because of the grace, mercy, and love of God that we received ourselves. What if people had given up on you? What if God had given up on us? People can change, and people can choose. We see that in this story. God said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh within 40 days, yet Nineveh wasn't destroyed in 40 days. We actually see that in lots of prophecies in the Bible, that it was conditional on the people's response. One of the things I love about stories like this is it destroys Calvinism. And if you know me, I love anything that destroys Calvinism because I think it's a plague to Christianity. This idea that we can't choose because of our depraved nature, that God has to choose for us arbitrarily, which is an assault on the character of God. You're elect or not elect, you have no choice in the matter, no free will. Unconditional election, you can't do anything, you can't choose. Limited atonement, only died for a few. Once saved, always saved. Despicable doctrines. This story, like so many throughout the Bible, teaches that they had a choice. They had a choice in their destiny. They could choose to repent. They could choose to do what's right. Notice that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Their salvation was conditional upon repentance. They had to repent, and that was seen in their works. Salvation involves works in some sense. Not works where we earn salvation or deserve it, still only by the grace of God, but we have to respond to the grace that teaches us. Salvation includes work. Jesus said in John 6, belief is a work, a work of God. Colossians 2, baptism is a work, a work of God. Faith in God. 
Salvation includes works. And notice the means by which God taught these people. Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Why didn't God just tell them what they need to do directly? If Jonah was reluctant, Jonah didn't want to do it. Why didn't God just take matters into his own hands? We see that throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Acts. Humans teaching humans. Why didn't the angel tell them directly? Why didn't Jesus tell them directly? Why didn't God tell them directly? Because that's not how it works. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Even in vessels like Jonah, who was used to be God's mouthpiece. God uses the word to convict and convert the sinner. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Sword of the Spirit is the word of God, Ephesians six seventeen. So as we close, we said earlier, we want to talk about Jesus and Jonah. That Jesus' credibility in part depends upon the credibility of this account. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39 through 42, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. They asked Jesus for another sign. Jesus said, I'm not doing it. I've given you plenty of signs, plenty of proofs, plenty of miracles, and your hard heart won't allow you to believe. I'm wasting my time, but he said, I'm going to give you one more sign. The sign of Jonah, the ultimate sign, the resurrection, the empty tomb. And if you won't believe that, nothing else will convince you. And he said, there are consequences for not believing and responding to the sign of Jonah. And yet we have people today still wanting some special feeling or experience, like Calvinism teaches, more evidence. And Jesus rebukes them. So I'm going to give you one more sign to cause you to believe. It's the sign of Jonah. I'm going to tell you, the sign of Jonah changed everything. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ be not raised, our faith is vain, our preaching is a lie. We're of all men most miserable, but he says, Christ is raised. I'm an eyewitness to that. And he lists other eyewitnesses. And how do you explain not a single one of them recanted? had everything to lose and nothing to gain by a worldly perspective, put their selves, put their families in jeopardy. Not a single one recanted. How do you explain that? You say your, your thesis of your preaching is Christ rose from the dead and we saw him. That's either true or not true. And you know if that's true or not true. How do you, all, how do you explain that they all gave their life in defense of that proclamation? Everything they were, everything they did, every sermon they preached, every sacrifice they made, Everything they lost, every death was in defense and proclamation of the sign of Jonah. I want to tell you, it changed everything. The spread and rise of Christianity, the fruits of Christianity can only be explained by an empty tomb. Even the enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb was empty. Why? It's theological. The fact that it is, that's historical. It's a historical fact. When, G- when Peter preached the first gospel sermon in Acts 2, so the ultimate reason you should be a Christian, the ultimate reason you should believe is because the tomb is empty... They were probably within a 10-minute walk of where they put the body. Produced a dead body, they couldn't do it. And the only explanation is that he rose from the dead, the son of Jonah. And I want to tell you, it'll change everything for you. You want mercy, you want grace, you want forgiveness, you want to be rescued, you want deliverance. You want hope beyond death. You want out of the belly of hell. 
respond to the son of Jonah this morning. God loves you. God cares about you. We talked about God cares about everyone. That, that includes us. That includes every one of us. He said, I know how many hairs are on your head. This story teaches as much as anything, God's love for everyone. If God could love the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, if he could send his word to them, if he would save them, then God will do the same for you. There's not anything you've done in your past that God, the power of the blood of Jesus, cannot forgive, cannot wash away. And if you want a second chance, Paul said, crucify that old man of sin, bury him in baptism, wash in the blood of Jesus, resurrected to walk in newness of life. If you want newness of life, Jesus said, be born again into the kingdom of God. If you need to respond to the sign of Jonah this morning, a greater than Jonah is here, and he invites you to come, please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.